live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. My guest today is Dr. Khalil Shikaki. Dr. Shikaki is a professor of political science and director of the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research in Ramallah. He is considered by many to be the foremost Palestinian pollster. Dr. Shikaki, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. Every six months, you take a broad poll of Israeli and Palestinian society. How did this practice start, and what were you aiming to discover? Uh, this is something that goes back to 2000. Um, when we first started it, this was a joint uh, activity by the Palestinian Center that I run in Ramallah and the uh, Truman Institute at the Hebrew University. Uh, we recently changed partners and we're now working with the Steinman Center at Tel Aviv University. But when we first started, we, we wanted uh, the first survey to be done after the Camp David uh, summit in July 2000. Um, we were optimistic, but also realistic. Optimistic, we prepared a set of questions in which we hoped we would begin to measure a process of reconciliation. After a peace agreement is reached, how would reconciliation unfold? Uh, so we wanted to monitor the unfolding of a new process of reconciliation. And we also realized things might not work out. So we had a different set of questions for the post-Camp David environment. One in which the parties fail to reach an agreement. In that case, we wanted to assess how the two parties, what, what the two parties' narratives are as to why this process uh, has been failing. And uh, as you know, of course, Ken David was not uh, a success. And so we started to ask people a lot of questions about um, where to go from here, who's responsible for the failure, um, whether the, the two publics shared the attitudes of their leaders and supported the positions that have been taken, uh, knowing now that they have failed and so on. That's when we started the basic goal, therefore, was optimistic, and the goal was to uh, assess where things are heading and how we as pollsters can help policymakers make the best of it. Um, we can show them where the problems are, and they can find solutions. Ultimately, of course, we found ourselves right in the middle of the second intifada, immediately after that first poll. That first poll, in fact, was so uh, uh, interesting because on the Palestinian side, it showed that there was significant uh, anger among the Palestinians, and there was a great deal of disappointment, and people started to move away from previous positions that we, uh, separately, have been looking at uh, among Palestinians, uh, in which the evidence was clear that Palestinians supported diplomacy and opposed violence. July 2000, one week after the, fail, the, the failure at Camp David, public opinion showed a dramatic increase in support for violence and a dramatic decline uh, in the belief that diplomacy alone can bring about an end to the Israeli occupation and the building of a Palestinian state. 
Um, the following years, we were essentially trying to understand uh, where the two publics were with regard to, to the peace process, uh, whether violence that was unfolding had any impact on the willingness to compromise that uh, we, we measured starting in July 2000. Um, and the story that unfolded all the way up until 2015, for 15 years, is a story of decline and support for compromise. It was not dramatic, it did not happen at one single year. It is a systemic reversal in support for compromise. So in 15, we decided, okay, we, we clearly the trend has been negative. We want to know what happened to those people who 15 years ago used to support compromise and who were willing to make significant compromises in order to reach uh, an end to the conflict. And if we were able to identify them, of course it was easy to identify them. Um, is there a way that we can bring them back? Is there a way we can resuscitate a viable peace process? That's basically our goal. We've seen it, the support declining, and I'll just give you an example. On the Palestinian side, in the mid-90s, support for compromise and a twisted solution reached somewhere between 70 to 80 percent. And by the time we started, we were barely at 50 percent. So that's a significant decline in support. This is about the two-state solution. And the picture on the Israeli side was not much different, by the way. So we did it drop to about 50% in 2000 or 2015? 15. 2015. Yeah. So in 2015, with uh, support having dropped about 20 to 30 points over the past 15 years, you decided what you wanted to do with the poll is not just report on the falling numbers, but try to figure out how you could push them back up. Exactly, how to reverse the trend. Well, so in order to do that, we needed to assess uh, whether this trend is reversible and at what cost, what needs to be done to reverse the process. So the current survey is basically aimed at doing exactly that. So we, we essentially wanted to do three things. Uh, the first one was to identify the issues, what we call the components of any permanent peace agreement, a package that would ultimately have to resolve all the issues. So we have to determine what are these issues. Uh, as I said, some of these issues are uh, have witnessed significant hardening of attitudes. Other issues uh, remain relatively open. For on the issues that remain relatively open, for example, this idea that you can end the conflict at one point, that a peace agreement would actually end, bring about an end to the conflict. That there would be no further claims no further violence after you reach a peace agreement, that this would be considered, this package of issues or components or compromises would end the conflict. This remained surprisingly very flexible. Both sides, a majority on both sides, continued to support the idea that a peace agreement reached between the two sides would have one interpretation, this is the end of conflict. As opposed to merely a ceasefire. As, as opposed to this is an interim deal uh, that yes, we sign an agreement in which we say we, uh, we have resolved this issue or that issue, but some other issues could come up. We can bring up new issues later on and so on. It is very important for the parties that once they uh, sit down at the table and want to reach a permanent deal, that this permanent deal 
uh, would also mean this is an end to the conflict. When you say a majority maintain, uh, may still maintain this position, is that is that a strong majority or is that? Uh, a majority meaning more than 50%. There were times in which this majority over the years have stood at two-thirds, sometimes even 70%. Now, it's just around 50% or so. But it's a majority nonetheless, unlike other issues where we lost the majority uh, completely. In the event of a, of a peace deal then, let me see if I'm understanding this right, in the event of a peace deal, a majority say they'd be willing to just let the whole thing go if it's a good deal, and then that's, that's the end. But there's still a substantial minority that would say, this is only an interim deal, we still need to push for what exactly? Well, you've reached a conclusion that I haven't indicated. Okay. Uh, I'm not saying that if a peace agreement is reached today uh, and it's supported by the public, that this would mean the other 50 will say that this is not necessarily the end of conflict. I'm just taking a single issue, separating it from the package itself, and looking at how attitudes regarding this separate issue has, uh, have evolved. This is not to say that uh, back then or today, if this issue is part of a larger package and you are not looking at that issue but at the larger package, that attitudes remain the same. That's the, the package itself may be supported by a much larger majority uh, or a much less uh, majority than a particular issue, mm. the, uh, such as end of conflict. In other words, you can, you can find, let's say, 50% supported end of conflict. The package could actually receive the support of 70% or 30%. It depends on other issues, and it depends on what kind of trade-offs the two publics make sure. regarding the various components and issues they are looking at. Well, I think to distill it to, distill it to a specific point, um, and I don't want to spend too much time in this, it's just that you brought it up, I, I figured it might be important. Something that I've, I've seen um, on both sides is a sort of fear that even if something were worked out, it would be ultimately, there would be some degree of bad faith behind it and that it wouldn't take much on either side of a, um, of a will for further violence to defect from the deal and start a new round of, of conflict. Uh, there's no doubt that the, the issue you're now raising is the question of implementation, whether once an agreement is reached, whether that agreement will be implemented in good faith or whether uh, the two sides or one of the two sides might under certain conditions, once the agreement is signed, might actually renege on the agreement. The Palestinians might say, well, if somebody is opposed to the agreement, decides to carry out a violent attack, the Israelis might renege and say, well, we can't implement the agreement now that there has been Palestinian violence. And uh, for the Palestinians, the, the Palestinians might say, well, uh, we, uh, we agreed on, them, on this, but now look at how you are implementing this part of the deal or that part of the deal. And you're not respecting the agreement, let's say, on the refugee question. And so therefore, we can, we can no longer uh, remain committed to the idea that this is the end of all things. That some Palestinians may, therefore, because you have done this or that, may want to raise claims in the future. So. Uh, the, the idea of ending all, uh, the, the idea of faithful implementation of the deal is, is of course very, very important. But it's not uh, among those when, when we consider what are the components of any agreement. That is not one of those. That's a, a separate issue. Right. The issue of giving people assurances that the agreement that has been signed will actually be implemented it is something that could bring more support or bring less support 
to the package of components. As these components are uh, the meat in, in, in that agreement. So the, the components themselves, in a sense, are separate from the implementation of those components and they need to be treated separately. Uh, absolutely. Let's we, look at some of the, with your permission, I'd like to look at some of the components within, the, within this plan that sits at the, at the center of your pole. Um, it's the nine-point permanent status piece uh, package. Right. You say this. This is um, where, what's the origin of these nine points? They are the, the point of departure is the Clinton parameters of December two thousand. Oh, Clinton, uh, he didn't. Clinton did not invent these. The the Clinton parameters basically summarize what Palestinians and Israelis negotiating in December, November, and December of that year. This is post Camp David. Um, uh, agreed among themselves. Uh, so this is basically uh, the American president now summarizing the positions of the two sides and what agreements they have reached and isolating those issues that have been, that have remained open without uh, a satisfactory solution. And here comes the U.S. president uh, in order to ensure that there is a deal, uh, essentially coming up with bridging proposals. A bridging proposal, therefore, would address these various remaining issues that have not been resolved by the negotiators who were negotiating at that time. So the Clinton parameters, therefore, for us, represent previous agreements uh, or bridging proposals that have been submitted for the considerations of the parties. We started with that, uh, but we went further all the way up to 2008 when the Israeli former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert and the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas uh, negotiated for a period of about a year, slightly less than a year, and we know a lot about these uh, negotiations from documents that have been collected by, written by Palestinian negotiators and later released, uh, or by interviews given by the Israeli Prime Minister, former Prime Minister, or by the Palestinian President. So we have a very good understanding of what Abbas and Olmert agreed on. And, of course, we have the baseline of the Clinton parameters, and we combine the two to come up with the package of nine elements. Can we go through those quickly, uh, point by point? Sure. So uh, the, the, the first one is about mutual recognition and end of conflict. Sure. Basically, this is where we, may, we say, okay, the, these are two states, the two sides will recognize each other, uh, and agree that this agreement that they have just reached means the end of the conflict once implemented. So that's item number one. Item number two, three, and four uh, looks at security measures. Uh, the Palestinian state will be demilitarized, but there will be an international force in the Palestinian state. The state would be sovereign, but Israel will have two uh, early warning stations in the West Bank. So these are three uh, issues related to security. Um, we have issues related to Jerusalem. We have two issues related to Jerusalem. One is about the territory and the population, um, basically saying there will be two capitals, mm -hmm. one for the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, one for uh, Israel uh, in West Jerusalem and any other part of Jerusalem that would be annexed to the state of Israel. I'll come back to the issue of annexation and and what and, and the territorial dimension in a minute. Sure. Uh, but this is about Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, therefore, are two Jerusalems. Uh, we're, we're not saying necessarily that the two Jerusalems will will be separate, but it's it's left open. Um, and the other issue of Jerusalem is about uh, the old city, where there too we have taken the Clinton parameters that basically separates 
the, the holy sites. The Jews will have sovereignty over the Western Wall, and Palestinians will have sovereignty uh, over Al Haram Sharif or the Temple Mount. So now, the Jew, Israel will also have sovereignty over the Jewish quarter. Palestinians will have sovereignty over Muslim and Jewish and, and Christian quarters. This, again, these are basically the Clinton territories. Um, on territory, we have two issues so that I've given you so far. Um, uh, I think I gave you six so far. Uh, what about through mutual recognition, demilitarized Palestinian state, Palestinian sovereignty in, in Israeli early warning, uh, the two capitals in Jerusalem? Uh, an international force. The, Multinational uh, force as part of security okay. as well. Right. Um, uh, we have two more on territory, mm -hmm. uh, that there would be um, a territorial exchange. Uh, certain parts of the West Bank would be annexed to the state of Israel. Israel will give the Palestinians uh, certain parts of the state of Israel. And the second territorial dimension basically specifies that the exchange will be equal. So it's an equal exchange in which uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis exchange territories that are equal in size. Uh, this would address the settlements, the settlements question in the West Bank. And finally, so that's eight, finally on refugees, Again, we also used, in part, the Clinton parameters, uh, which basically said there would be language that would respect the, the Palestinian wishes to recognize the right of return, um, which would then say the Palestinians will have a right to return to their homeland or to historic Palestine. Um, but it, there's a second component to the refugee solution, which basically says uh, a number of refugees, a small number, not all five or six million refugees, but 100,000 refugees, would be able to um, be absorbed by the state of Israel as family unification. Uh, and so these two elements, the right of return to historic Palestine or to homeland, and the restriction imposed on the number who can actually be absorbed in the state of Israel, who can therefore return to Israel, if you wish, uh, would be 100,000. So these are the nine elements. It's about refugees, uh, two about borders, uh, two about Jerusalem, three about security, and one about recognition, uh, mutual recognition and end of conflict. I'm, I'm honestly quite floored with how well you did that without any notes. Can I just ask about the, um, the multinational force? Yes. Um, what would that consist of? What does that look like? Uh, since the Palestinian state would be uh, demilitarized, uh, somebody, uh, it will have a strong police force. The agreement states that, that we present to the public. But uh, this multinational force it remains undefined in the, in the sense that it, we do not specify the numbers, but we do specify that it will be deployed in the Palestinian state to provide security for the Palestinians and Israelis. Okay. And the, uh, the family unification in Israel, uh, that, that is meant, I, I presume, as a sort of compromise between on the, on the question of right of return, where um, Palestinians who uh, fled or were driven out during the Nakba in '48. Will ha like they want to return, and the number of Palestinian refugees is currently at around six million. You said, which and Israel says, well, they can't absorb that, and so there's a sort of compromise position where people who still have families within the border of uh, of the Green Line, some of them can be reunited. So that's is that is that roughly correct? Yes, and we the number itself is the outcome of various suggestions that have been produced over the years. Um, it's less than what Palestinians want, it's more than what the Israelis want, it's somewhere in the middle. The key to good compromise is making sure everyone's a little bit unhappy. Well, in the case of refugees, there isn't really any compromise that will make both sides happy. Mm -hmm. we, we, you, you try, but 
we, we're lucky if we get a 50% uh, support for any. The issue, the, the two issues of Jerusalem and refugees are the most sensitive, the most emotional, the ones that have a lot of narratives and religion and history behind them. I want to swing back to those, but first, just in a broad stroke, what was, what, how does support for this plan look today as opposed to, say, six months ago and as opposed to a few years ago? Uh, I think within six months, it's difficult to see much of a change. Um, but I, I would say there were times in the past in which support was much higher for such a package than it is now. Uh, in 2008, for example, there was a similar, not identical, but very similar survey that we conducted, actually a series of surveys. Uh, these surveys at that time indicated that you could reach anywhere between mm, 60 to 65% support from both sides for that, for this package. Support, and so this is 2008, this is 10 years ago. Uh, if you look at the current findings, the current findings of course indicate that only 40%, 40% of the Palestinians would accept this package, and only 35% of Israeli Jews would accept this package. But this is a significant decline compared to where we were only 10 years ago. Um, I would say if we go back further, if you go back, say, to 2000, the support it's, becomes more difficult because at that time these specific ideas were not yet completely developed. But I would say there would be much higher, even much higher support than we had in 2008. Uh, you could talk about maybe 70% or more. What do you think are the uh, main factors driving this decline? Uh, it's very clear, the findings indicate that over the years, the two sides have lost uh, the confidence and trust in each other. The greatest failure of the peace process uh, has been that it has failed to produce trust uh, and whatever trust that existed at one point evaporated very fast. The years of the Second Intifada, uh, but before that, the years of Netanyahu between 69 and 99, were horrible years for the peace process in terms of their impact on the willingness to trust the other side. The answer to the question, do you think that the other side wants peace? Or do you think the other side supports the two-state solution? Um, or simply, do you trust the other side? Mm -hmm. um, the, the belief and trust, and the belief that the other side is like me, want peace and so on, uh, but if we look at it today, that I think has been the single most damaging development since the Oslo process started. On this issue of trust, your survey uh, surveys both uh, the general public and elites, academics, journalists, politicians, and something that you've found is both the elites and the public consistently underestimate support for a two-state solution on their own side. And on the other side. And on the other side. Why is this, do you think? It's a good question. We know why on the other side. On the other side is because you don't trust the other side. You're not likely, you're likely to think that your side uh, is the good side, the other side is evil. And so you're not likely, if you, support, if you think your side supports the two-state solution, uh, you think this is a good thing to support, uh, it means you're moderate, it means you want peace. Uh, and when you think of the other side, of course, that's, these are not the images you have in your mind of the other side. You, in fact, have the opposite images. So, you therefore, you almost immediately tend to underestimate. Uh, you do not do this deliberately and intentionally. You don't know what the other side think. We as pollsters can say that you are underestimating because our findings indicate 
that there is as much support for this uh, uh, among the other side as there is on your side. So we, the posters, are able to look above everything and we can see, because we ask both sides these questions, and we can see where each side sits. But if you go face to face with one side, uh, that one side doesn't see what we see. And its answers are likely to be influenced by all these other stuff, trust and whatnot. And they will frame and color the responses in a negative way. It's almost always in a negative way. Uh, now for your side, it seems that you, the, but by the way, the gap between the actual attitudes and the attitudes on one's own side is not as wide as the gap between the attitudes of the other side and your perception of that attitude. So let me see if I understand that. You're saying that when you ask someone, how does your side feel about it and how does the other side feel about it, they'll generally underestimate somewhat their own side's uh, support for the two-state solution and massively yes. underestimate the other side. Absolutely. And again, the word underestimate is based on the findings. Right. Um, this is not a term that the public uses. In other words, you can, you can, let's, you basically have three questions. One says, do you support or oppose this package? And let's say, this is 2008, mm. and I'm selecting a good year. And let's say 60% of both sides said, we support it. The next question is, and what about the majority on your side? Do you think the majority on your side will support or oppose this package? You'll get 50 to 55% say, a majority on my side will support this package. Now that's an under underestimation, mm -hmm. because what we have just found is 60%. And the third question is, what do you think the majority of the other side? Now, we've asked the other side, and we have found that the other side supported by 60%. And now we're asking you, what do you think the majority of the other side think? Uh, you are likely to say, by a massive amount, let's say 75 to 80%, you would say the other side does not support it. Well, that is not true. In fact, we found a majority in favor. And it's not 20 or 25%, it's 60%. So, we call this, the first question is, is about public opinion. So, this is the declared positions of the two publics. When we ask you, you're willing to tell us what you think. So, that's public opinion. The other two, well, they are public opinion too, but we actually call them the normative attitudes. Normative in the sense, this is the prevailing perception about the attitudes. They are not accurately assessing, but they are accurately telling us what a certain public thinks about the attitudes of somebody else, whether it's their own side or the other side. It seems that this could easily create a, a sort of vicious feedback loop where people think, well, people on my side don't support it, and people over there don't support it, and therefore I guess I'm stupid for supporting it, and then they won't support it, and that drives the numbers down further. Uh, that doesn't scare me much. What scares me is when leaders do that. When leaders say, ha, my public doesn't support it, and God damn it, the other public does not support it. So why should I do anything about it? I, I, I just, so it basically destroys the ability of leaders to take the initiative because they think they don't have a constituency on their side, and even if they do on their side, it's not going to go anywhere because the other side doesn't want it, is not ready for it, is not matured enough for it, so forget it, let's just move on. In a sense, this is like the bad news, that it's really difficult for leaders to have initiative. Something that seems very much like the good news, and this is where you say you're optimistic as well as realistic, yes. something that seems very much like the good news from your findings is that incentives seem to really work. That if you uh, offer someone 
a bit extra that, that will very often change minds. Absolutely. What, what we are finding is that these incentives really are, you should look at these incentives as answer to the question about reversibility. If I offer you something, if you say no to a package I just presented you, and then I offered you something else, a sweetener, mm -hmm. and you said, oh, well, yes, in this case, if, if you do this, I, I will accept the package. Well, it depends, of course, on what the sweetener is. But let's say that the sweetener can be easily managed. It's not difficult at all. It can done, be, be, be done immediately without too much pain, without too much investment, and, and so on. It might be a symbolic gesture that someone has to do. And it could, of course, be about money and resources and, and whatnot, but it could be something that is intangible and that can be easily done. What? If that is the case, then our conclusion would be that the shift, the hardening of attitudes, the rejection of compromise is reversible. We can easily bring people back to where they were 10 years ago. That's basically our message from testing. We have been testing in every survey over the last two years, four surveys so far. We have tested on an average uh, 14, 15 incentives, uh, seven or eight for each side. And we have concluded that the overwhelming majority of these incentives have a capacity to change attitudes on both sides so that we can have a majority support with, and that is critical, with one single incentive. We don't have to use all the incentives we have been testing. One single incentive, and it could be the same incentive for both sides. Of, of, from our latest survey, for example, when we said to the Palestinians and Israelis who said no to the package, we said, what if we gave you assurances that the Palestinian, the future Palestinian state will be democratic? You know, when, when we said the Palestinian state would be created, we did not identify what kind of state it will be. Now we basically say to people, we assume that people have certain assumptions about the nature of the state. And we know that some people, based on previous research, some people oppose uh, a two-state solution because they think this or that about the future of Palestinian state. So when in our latest survey we said, what if we can assure you that the future Palestinian state will be democratic, what happened? It was absolutely fascinating. We had a majority of Palestinians and Israelis that moved to support the package from 35 on the Israeli side, 35% on the Israeli side, and 40% and on the Palestinian side to 60%. On both? On both sides. Wow. With the same incentive. And it's about the democratic nature of the Palestinian state. Now, who is opposed to a future Palestinian state being democratic? Very few people are likely to stand up and say, well, we don't want it to be democratic, we want it to do this or that. Uh, the question is, can you actually give people assurances that this is doable? Leaders can do that. International guarantees can do, uh, have the same effect. You have to, so this is what certainly seemed to be a, something doable. Sure. without a great deal of sacrifice on either side. Overwhelming majority of Palestinians in our surveys support democracy, and overwhelming majority of Israelis support democracy. Now they want it for the future Palestinian state. Uh, we're doing exactly what people want. Uh, but, of course, there are other incentives that we measure that are either zero-sum or non-zero-sum. The, the, when we offer something to both sides simultaneously, we call it win-win. And if it is successful in changing attitude, like this one is. 
but sometimes we offer things that one or the other side uh, may not necessarily support. These are the zero sum. Uh, so we, we try to have, the, the reason we test for zero sum is because we want to understand the motivation. We're not only trying to figure out what policy measures can leaders adopt, but also to try and understand what motivates the opposition to think the way it does. This, this leads me to a question about the, the way these incentives are presented. Uh, there, there, there's established effects in psychology where if you make an opening offer and someone declines it and then you make an offer which looks better, then they're far more likely to say yes because it looks, it feels like something, as you say, a sweetener has been given. Have you uh, tested against that effect? Like, have you ever just given someone a 10-point plan and one of the points is a democratic Palestinian state and seen how that comes through? That is the next phase of our research. Right now, we are doing some of that indirectly. We're not... Uh, we're, we're, for example, part of the incentives has been the idea that the two states will have open borders and you can, an Israeli Jew, you can go and live as a permanent resident in Palestine, a Palestinian can move into Israel, become a permanent resident in Israel. We offer this to both sides. Mm -hmm. um, but we've started to test the idea where we would offer this as a separate issue. This is not as an incentive, but as a separate question in which we ask people whether they think this is a good idea or a bad idea. That means the entire population on both sides would be asked that question, not just a, a, a certain group that has expressed a certain view. This kind of testing, we, we are, the, the, the next phase of our research, which we hope will begin next year, uh, so we have one more year of testing along the side of what we're doing, would be to exactly do that. We will be taking, systematically taking, all the most important incentives we have tested, and then we will integrate them into the package to see, and then of course we have the data from previous research in which they were not integrated directly, but indirectly through the incentive structure and see how this differs. And if, there, if we find that there will be major differences, as some expect, and as we expect, we think that there might be differences. We don't know how big the differences will be. Then we want to see uh, what kind of arrangement needs to be made in order to ensure that uh, an agreement is, is ultimately reached. Now, we, we have various ideas, we haven't tested those yet, but, uh, and some of them will not be tested uh, at this time, of course, they can only be tested after a peace agreement is reached. The idea is that the, these are the elements of the package. They are the ones, the issues that have essentially been uh, in the media and, and, and people know about. But leaders would also be negotiating, separate of the package, how they will themselves help each other sell the deal, not to their side, but to the other side. In other words, how leaders can help their partners who have signed the peace agreement with them uh, market the agreement to their constituency. Each leader will be helping the other side. So what do I need to do as a leader who just signed that agreement to help the other leader who signed it with me sell it to his constituency? Now, we therefore want essentially, ultimately, to come up with either statements or policy measures that we want the leaders, the leaders to take after reaching the peace agreement, not before. So we want, we, the next testing will have two components, therefore. One is how do we improve the package so that those ideas that turn out to be 
important in creating greater support, are integrated, and secondly, we want to know how people will react if leaders from the other side are to do, say, or adopt policy measures along the lines of what we want to propose to these leaders to do once a peace agreement is reached. Fantastic. Uh, the, the reason we want to finish this year with the incentive structure that as currently planned is because it, it gives us a, a, a menu of all kinds of measures. Now these measures, by the way, are targeting almost, well, some of them target the entire population, but most of these incentives target certain groups. Remember what I said earlier, we're looking at three things. We're looking at issues, we're looking at constituencies, and we're looking at incentives. The constituencies part we haven't talked about, but that the purpose of, of focusing on the constituencies is to define which uh, groups in, in each society are, are the most difficult to sell the deal to. Um, is it the young or the old? Is it the religious or the secular? Uh, it is the left or the right? Uh, and so on. So, or certain regions. So we look very carefully at each constituency and we try to see once we know what you think, you, you hate the deal, okay. We start thinking sometimes with the help of focus groups as what is it in particular you hate about this? Focus groups have so far been very helpful to us in helping us decipher two major factors of why certain constituencies are unhappy. One is the agreement does not contain one, two, three, or the agreement implies one, two, three. Uh, for example, in the case of the Israeli Jews who opposed the package in the most recent uh, survey, believe that the agreement will mean that they can no longer visit the Temple Mount or Al-Haram Sharif. Well, when we said, oh yes, you can, you, the, 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 the reaction was dramatic. Almost half of those who said no now said yes. Palestinians, when we looked at Palestinians who work in Israel, laborers who work in Israel, when, when they are offered, when they are told that they can, after a peace agreement is reached, they can continue to work in Israel. Here too, there was a dramatic change in which a, a large percentage of Palestinians, not just the laborers, but of course their families as well, a lot of other people, uh, said, yes, in this case I would support the package. So, uh, these examples, these are tangible examples, of course, but we also look at uh, others, um, they meant basically to ensure people who thought that a two-state solution would mean this or that. Um, and of course we're ta tailoring these incentives, therefore to meet the needs of these specific, uh, specific groups. In, in some other cases it is what's in it for me? the agreement does not contain anything useful for me. In this case, when, when, uh, when we look at, uh, not this survey, the previous survey. Uh, early on when we started this, I mean before we, we, the, we tested the incentives, one thing stood out to us without good explanation as to why Jews, Mizrahim in Israel, uh, mostly uh, traditionalists and, and, and people from uh, previous background in the Middle East. Uh, why are they opposed to the agreement? There is no clear answer as to why this sort of ethnic background uh, is causing a, a large group of Israelis to oppose the package. And based on the focus groups, we concluded that, well, maybe they just don't see in it any, any, anything useful for them. 
for them as a particular group. So when we said Jews from Arab countries who left home in 48 and, and, and immigrated to Israel would be compensated for land and property they left behind, the reaction was massive on the part of the Mizrahi. 50% of those who said no now said yes. 50%. Of course, 50%. This was the, well, we did have a higher than 50%. In fact, in the Palestinian case, we, we offered an incentive that changed the perception, the attitudes of 56% of Palestinians. This was about the release of Palestinian prisoners. Uh, the package itself did not contain uh, assurances about release of prisoners. But as an incentive, we said Israel will release, once the agreement is reached, Israel will release all Palestinian prisoners. 56% of those who said no, now said yes. Incredible. So you're really finding uh, some incentives that can uh, hopefully shift in a big way public yes. perception. But, but uh, we, we are encouraged by that, but at the same time there's a challenge here. In, in, for, for the win-win incentives, the challenge is minimum. And that is, as you framed it earlier, what happens when we integrate into the package? Do we still get the two-thirds or the 70% or do we go to 50? It's better than, say, 35 or 40, but it's still not as high as uh, we would have expected. Um, the problem is with incentives that are one-sided. That is zero sum. Mm. If you say to uh, Israeli Jews, you'll be able to visit the Temple Mount. Well, we don't know what happens if we said this to the Palestinians. If the package said, Palestinians have sovereignty, but Israeli Jews will continue to visit. Maybe it will not change attitudes, but maybe it will. So we don't know. We haven't tested that yet. So we'll have to test that. Similarly, if we said to the Israelis, ah, but the agreement also says you have to release all Palestinian prisoners. Mm -hmm. Ah, I see. So this might then have a negative impact on the Israelis. This is what we call zero-sum. That is, at the moment, we're testing some of those just to see how important this issue is and for which particular constituencies. Um, ultimately, of course, one of the testing that we will be doing in the next phase is what happens if I offered you both? I offer you releasing prisoner if you're a Palestinian. The Israelis know about it, but I counter that by offering them to visit uh, the Temple Mount. So, and then I tell the Palestinians, ah, you get the prisoners, but Israelis also visit the Temple Mount. So, uh, am I balancing things? Is that okay? If I balance, that that's great, because I've tested a, a, a zero-sum uh, measure, and it did not hurt the package. Of course, I wanted to do more than not hurt. I wanted to benefit the, the package. But these testing help us then determine, ultimately, what kind of balance a deal must contain in order to garner a majority support from both sides. In our last few minutes together, I'd like to ask you about a completely different subject. President Mahmoud Abbas issued a cybercrime law last year that punishes with a year of imprisonment anyone who creates a website that, in the words of the legislation, aims to publish news that would endanger the integrity of the Palestinian state or the public order. And he's also come after you personally, blocking your think tank, the PCPSR, from access to its European Union funding in a seeming attempt to force you to close. In response, you told the New York Times yesterday, uh, quote here, power has corrupted Abbas. He destroyed the judiciary and he's destroying the plurality of civil society. The cybercrime law is worthy of Saddam Hussein. End quote. Your think tank is based in Ramallah. Where do you get the courage to speak so directly? Well, uh the center that I run has always been in the forefront of basically exposing the public to the truth. Uh, we're not reluctant, we, we are never hesitating in, in telling Abbas or telling the public what we think about the issues. 
the center, our my, the researchers who work with me and myself have been saying this openly for a long period of time. Uh, the, the challenge facing Palestinians and, and particularly uh, the ability of civil society to remain pluralistic uh, is the ability to stand up to the authoritarian nature of the Palestinian authority. We have a system that today lacks any accountability. We do not have a parliament, uh, and the judiciary is too weak and too marginal and have lost its independence. So we have an executive that essentially has no checks. A system without checks and balances is one that will become more and more authoritarian, and civil society and the ability of civil society to be willing to stand up to that kind of uh, challenge uh, imposed by the executive is the only uh, thing remaining for the Palestinians. And uh, despite the, the crackdown in civil society, including uh, the issue you've raised, the Palestinian authorities is essentially uh, imposing certain conditions on, uh, on our ability to access resources, funding from donors. Um, we, we, the, basically, the government says you can't access it automatically. You, we have to give you permission to access funding from any source. I can't go and personally, it's a, it's a bank account that uh, for my center, but I can't go to that account today and put $10 there unless I show the bank that I have authorization to do that from my cabinet. That's crazy. It basically destroys the independence of civil society. And we said to the government, this is illegal. It destroys our independence. We will not comply with your regulation. Because if we are to comply, we become part of you. We become agents for you. Do whatever you want to do because you control the money of the institution. We can't run without you saying so. And therefore, in principle, we can't comply. And the government responds well. Well, in that case, you can't have the money. So, what's the next step for the PCPSR? Well, we are fighting this, these regulations that the government is trying to impose. We're doing this, we've been engaged with the, in a dialogue with the government to convince them that this is not only legal, but it's very, very harmful to the future of the Palestinian civil society. So far it has failed, but we're not giving up. We're mobilizing other NGOs and civil society groups and members of parliament and the media. We've tried to go through to the judiciary um, but as I indicated earlier, the judiciary is just too marginal, too weak, does not have the capacity to challenge the government, and basically the judiciary says uh, it's, it's not my responsibility. Go to some other court, a constitutional court, which is a, a mockery of the justice system, uh, just a political court that does what the government tells it to do. And so we basically do not have a legal recourse, but Nonetheless, we are continuing to raise questions about the legality of the measure by the government. And we are speaking out. We, we, we will continue to speak out against it uh, in the hope that the government will realize that what it is doing is shooting itself in the foot. If uh, someone here or abroad wants to support you or your work, what can they do to help? Uh, they certainly need to put pressure on our government uh, to stop these regulations. Uh, it, it is, of course, this is not just about civil society and or about the center, this particular center. It's about the entire political system. Uh, the cybercrime law that you've mentioned is certainly a horrible document that uh, is in, in total contradiction with everything that our constitution, our basic law says. The, those Palestinians who wrote the basic law, looking at the cybercrime law, would think that those who wrote the cybercrime law came from a different planet. 
it's a completely diff different kind of mindset, and it, a different, it, it creates a different political system. Um, and we need people to, to press uh, for a more open, more democratic, uh, more accountable system than the one we currently have. Dr. Shikaki, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Aaron Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike building Jerusalem.